Welcome to another episode of the WIP12 podcast. I'm your host for today. I'm Hedgeheim, um, and I'm here with Cav and Lobo, uh, two reasonably regular guests, I suppose, at this at this point. Um, and today we are going to be doing um, a bit more of a detailed dive into Alpha Strikes. Um, so we're going to be talking about what Alpha Strikes actually are, what they might look like, how important they are, and, and things like that. Um, this is a topic that's been requested a couple of times. So uh, yeah, we finally got to got to sat down, sit down and organize a chat. Um, how are you two? Doing very well. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, doing A-OK myself. We're going to start off focused, I suppose, and end up rambling as, as we always do, but that's okay. Um, but to start off, why don't we just talk a little bit about what an alpha strike is? Because I, I suppose we need a definition to, to begin with. Sure. Kev, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. So, um, in, in my opinion, uh, when I, when I think of the alpha strike, the important part is that it is you know, it happens on the first turn of the game, usually the first player of the first turn, although, you know, if you're going second and you pull off a wildly successful attack run, I'm not going to deny you the right to call that an alpha strike. And also, the second important part is that by being really aggressive, you, in my opinion, you decide the outcome of the game in general, right? You do enough damage on your first turn that the rest of the game is just, you know, filling in, in the details and dotting your I's and crossing your T's, but it was all decided on that first turn. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the important properties of what makes something an alpha strike. Usually it's an attack run, um, but it, you know, it doesn't in principle have to be. So that's, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I think, I think the elements of a successful alpha strike, it's one of two different options. The usual one is you you just strip your opponent of orders. And if you can kill five, six models on your first turn, you've cut your opponent's ability to do anything by a third. And most of the time, that is crippling. Because without orders, he can't push buttons, he can't move to engage your pieces. Um, so that's that's your first one. And then the other one, which is less common is especially in missions where your opponent requires specialists and if they haven't constructed their list with redundancies, you can actually cherry pick your opponent's models and cripple them that way. I have played games of unmasking where he has my opponent's three or four specialists and I've killed three of them. And now he has to play the remainder of the game with only one model that can actually accomplish Mm -hmm. the mission. (laughs) And he's so hampered trying to protect that one model and get it anywhere. Usually it's just, you know, it's, it's a doctor in the background or an engineer um, that like Cav said, the game is determined 
by the end of my first turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I suppose for, for people listening, um, if we're talking about this idea of exerting so much pressure on the first turn that it decides the game, the natural question is, well, you know, how could that be the case? How could that possibly come to, to pass? And our answers here is, well, we could, you can either strip so many orders that, you know, the opponent cannot really take enough actions to meaningfully play the game. Or the second possibility would be to remove such essential pieces from the game that the opponent um, simply cannot score. Um, the latter the latter possibility is is rarer, but you might see it in missions such as um, highly classified or countermeasures as well with specialists or unmasking, like, like um, Lobo said. Um, there used to be missions, I don't know if there still are in ITS-15, I think you guys can correct me, where you would have some kind of special elected troop, like a data tracker or something that would score most of your points. Um, I'm thinking of cryogenics last season. And if you killed that model, you could win the game quite easily. Um, I, I'm not sure about this season. I don't think uh, there's, there's a couple where there's a key ops, but I don't think there's mm-hmm. as many. Cause I mean, cryogenics in ITS 14, it scored three points yeah. over the course of the game. Maybe frostbite. You could, I mean, it's not just the one trooper, but uh, I've certainly played games of frostbite where the, Master Breacher, whatever it's called, uh, is like the key piece that the opponent will use to dominate the center. Mm. Kill that, and that could be nice. <laughs> yeah, so what a key piece looks like basically just changes from one mission to the next. But it's certainly not as common as just killing so many orders the opponent cannot really play. Um, I suppose we should contextualize this, though, a little bit more. Oh, sorry, Cap, did you want to come in? Yeah, one one other sort of thing that you might see, I think it's pretty rare uh, in general, um, but one third category that you might see is is not just killing specialists, but also killing um, the opponent's one good gun mm. that is their only way to solve whatever problem. Yeah. So if I'm running the Avatar and I'm playing against the Valor Haima and my Gryphop or whatever kills their Karhu, that may be that they just don't have any mechanism to deal with the avatar right. for the rest of the game. And even though that's one kill, I would say that that could be a pretty game-deciding kill, and in mm. that sense might deserve to be mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose, uh, are we saying that maybe you can sort of have pseudo-alphas where you perform one or two actions that get you very close to winning the game? Well, what you're doing there is you're using a, a gear check army list, and re- if they only have one piece of, of gear that's going to be able to deal with it, if you remove that, you've tilted things in your favor. Mm-hmm. Right. And whether that's an alpha strike or not is sort of down to taste, um, mm-hmm. but it's certainly something that I, I would say belongs in the discussion, if not on the list. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It is it is a tool available, particularly to the first player, to really tip things in their favour. Um, and to follow on from that, Cab, I think the really important point about removing your opponent's guns, if they don't have too many, is that it then makes all of your AROs much more powerful, because they just simply do not have the mechanism to deal with your list um, effectively, and that just it, it can really make the game very, very easy. Right, right, exactly. And that's a you know that would decide the game on, on say a first turn. 
Mm. Yeah. So we've we've spoken about the idea behind an alpha strike and we've we've listed you know, a couple of ideas about how you might go about doing it in terms of stripping orders, removing specialists, removing guns um, in certain missions, um, other, you know, essential troops such as heavy infantry and frostbite, things like that. Um, I guess we've kind of answered the question of why bother with an alpha strike or why they're important, but do we need to talk a little bit more about that and sort of what they're there to achieve and, and why the first player is looking to do this? Sure. I think, um, and I'll go first this time if that's okay. Um, I would say many ITS missions, if not most of them, not all, but most, the actual missions themselves favor second turn. Some of them to an extreme degree, I think uh, B-Pong and Panic Room are two of the most punishing for first player because all of the objective points are – they score by round and they heavily favor that second player because mm-hmm. in both of those missions, to score points, you have to leave models in very exposed positions and then have them survive your opponent's entire turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's many others that do it to a lesser degree and only a few like – Decapitation and firefight are the ones where, you know, you really want to go first. Going second does not help you in those missions at all. So really what that alpha strike is doing is it's negating second player advantage. And in many cases, if you don't successfully break your opponent's back on that first turn, the game is almost decided the other way in that the advantage of the mission for the second player is going to push you off the edge. It's going to break your back in reverse by having an unsuccessful alpha strike. Mm -hmm. So that's the primary, I mean, in addition to just winning the game, which is ultimately the point, um, you need to alpha strike successfully in order to overcome the deficit you're in by being first player. I think the way that I'd say, it, I mean, you can be very redundant, uh, or so, not redundant, sorry, reductionist and say, well, it wins you the game. So of course, you know, that's, that's the point of it. Um, but to look at this a bit more carefully and to contextualize and put alpha strikes in their place in terms of sort of game balance and how things flow. Um, what you've just said there is really important to bear in mind, which is that the last, the second player has a lot of advantages in multiple missions, um, most of them actually. And therefore the alpha strike isn't something that's just, you know, born out of convenience or power, but also somewhat out of necessity. Um, it's extremely hard to win a mission such as um, panic room as the first player. And therefore it really puts you in this position where you want to cripple the person playing well, second. I think in panic room, it's really hard to win the mission unless you go for the alpha strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I will regularly choose to go first in panic room because panic rooms deployment restrictions make it really hard to defend yourself. Yeah. So, but, but if I, but if I'm trying to go and do panic room and defend that room, I think that's a, that's a fool's errand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just so difficult to defend a lot of the time, particularly in missions that score at the end of each round. One comment that I would also want to raise here is that, um, you know, when you're doing Infinity, you are trying to get better at playing well, and you're trying to get better at 
playing the game. And if my strategy is go first, attack really, really hard, uh, that's that's going to work really well for me in like most missions. Hmm. Um, and so it's worth investing a lot of my list creation resources and also my time practicing as a player getting good at that one strategy because I can get really good at that one strategy. Um, like let's let's take a mission like countermeasures for example. Um, you're doing classifieds, but you can spend a lot of resources uh, getting redundancy in your ability to do many different types of classifieds. You could spend your whole list like just being really good at having lots of different options to do lots of different classifieds, or you can like have some basic classified coverage and then run, you know, Achilles or a Sphinx or whatever, something that really is just able to obliterate your opponent's army. And you can get really good at doing that attack. And that strategy will serve you pretty well in all of the missions. Whereas if you get really good at doing countermeasures, that's only going to help you doing countermeasures. So I think that's another thing that I've seen is like, especially when it comes to list building, I think a lot about the alpha strike, both as something I can do and something I have to survive because it matters in every single mission, regardless <laughs> of what that mission is asking us to do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm probably on the extreme end of mono list, but I know there are many people on the other end who like, they play different lists all the time and they like to experiment. And that is awesome. Uh, it is just not the way I play, and I tend to have – I pick an army, and I make a list that's designed to do exactly what you said, perform the same regardless of the mission because you can then play that list. doesn't matter who you're playing against. doesn't matter what mission you're playing, and you just get reps in using that formula. Hmm. And my lists, if you look at them, they're not – if they're specialist heavy, it's accidental. Well, my star model list mm -hmm. has like eleven specialists in it, but that's just it's that's not designed to have that many specialists. It just happens to be that way. But they're really sort of generalist lists with punishing alpha strikers that also can push buttons and achieve classifieds. Mm -hmm. But to Cav's point, it's because if I play it every time I play, every practice game I have, I'm running those same skills over and over and over again. Yeah. So it is really, really important to understand that being aggressive and removing the enemy's models is intrinsically rewarded in Infinity in every single mission because of the way the orders work. Um, and also just because of the way the game works. You know, you have 15 units and you've got to do the mission with those 15 units. And if they die, you know, you lose guns or specialists or orders or whatever. And that's always, always going to be true unless something dramatically, um, dr you know, something dramatic changes with the order system or with the way lists are built. Um, and I suppose we won't mention reinforcements here because we could go down a rabbit hole talking about reinforcements, but that kind of thing. But I think what you're saying, Lobo, is also really important in that if people are trying to, play competitively or perhaps at a high level 
unfortunately, we're a little bit boring and we like predictability. Predictability is really good for us. We want to be able to do the same sort of things um, in most situations um, and know what the opponent's going to do, know what our list is going to do, practice, 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 um, because I think that makes games, I don't know, what's the right word, games easier or more successful for us? It, it definitely makes them um, more predictable. Predictability mm. is, is mm. important. Mm. And, and again, this is mm. my point of view is strictly from a competitive point of view. The game is not only designed to be played competitively. You can play it for fun. You can have wacky lists. You mm. can like – in many cases, you come up with really interesting scenarios um, and – play non-ITS missions, all of which are completely valid and fun ways of playing the game. Um, as an aside, I'd listened to one of Robert Shepard's videos, and he had said something that uh, I thought was very interesting in that he's talking about the new card system they're coming out with, or I guess it just dropped. I forget what it's called. Um, Is it Resilience have, or something? Resilience? Yeah. Yeah, where yeah. they have different missions. And he said – what interests him in a lot of cases is friction, and these things create friction. And mo- what competitive players want is they want a frictionless ball, right? They want as little as little unpredictability as possible because they want their – whatever method they have, whatever plan they have to work as long as they execute it properly. And the less unpredictability and the less friction that it has, the better. And I can, as a competitive player, I can sort of associate with that. Um, it, again, and it speaks to your point about predictability. Like I want to know, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to get the outcome I want the majority of the time. There are dice involved, so obviously there's unpredictability. But the more factors I can remove, the better. I uh, I personally wouldn't call it predictability. Um, as a player um, – I think that the time that an excellent player is distinguished from a uh, someone who's, who's good is when they are put in an uh, awkward situation and they find a path to victory anyway. And so from, from my taste, um, I actually, as a competitive player, I don't necessarily think that predictability is what's important um, because, you know, I think that the game is most interesting when you end up in a situation that you have to identify what your path to victory is. Unpredicted spot. However, when you're playing, you, if you want to be, if you want to win, right, uh, and you have a choice between a different approach, and one approach is more reliable than the other approach, going with the unreliable approach is probably going to be less of a good idea than going with the more reliable approach. I mean, there's trade-offs to that, right? But but even if you don't say anything about the taste of the player involved, the fact of the matter is is that being more reliable is going to be favored from a winning perspective than being unreliable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the context of alpha strikes, a successful alpha strike wins the game very, very reliably yeah. if I can pull it off. Yeah. So... If my goal is to win, the game will reward me with more wins if I get really good at doing that one thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the game will punish me if I get if I don't if I don't get good at defending against that one thing, um, because other people can come out to strike me, and then my game's over. 
Um, so, so even without any taste involved, it, it still is a question of reliability. Yeah. I think we were actually talking about this a little bit before we started recording in terms of the actions that you might choose to do on the first turn. And what we came to, I think, was this idea that becoming very aggressive, trying to perform an alpha strike on the first turn is, if you do it successfully, it leads to reliable outcomes. Um, whereas on the other hand, doing something like pressing a button is perhaps much less reliable because of all of those other factors we've just spoken about in terms of second play in favour um, and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, just as an example... Let's suppose I'm going first and the mission is supplies. Let's suppose I have enough fast specialists um, or whatever that I could potentially grab all three boxes and bring them back to my DZ on the first turn of the game. Yeah, That could be a game-winning strategy. And I've had games where I did that and it was what allowed me to win the game. But it is also extremely nerve-wracking because mm-hmm. you've got – three of your opponent's turns, and then two of your own turns, where all you have to do is figure out how to, like, defend your three supply boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, on the other hand, if I was just like, okay, well, whatever, uh, I know the mission says supplies, but my list says annihilation, mm-hmm. and I kill everything they have and pick up the boxes later, you know, that, that's going to work. That's going to work just yeah, fine. Right, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and I think that I, I don't know a better word than predictability, unpredictability at the moment. But I think that feeds into if I remove my opponent's orders, they have less actions to take. Every action they take is the possibility that either they do something I don't expect or didn't see coming, or they perform an action, even if it's not the best one, they perform – this goes back to you know playing to your outs – if they see a path to victory, however unlikely, even if I've performed a – really good alpha strike. If they choose to take it and the dice reward them, then that throws a monkey wrench into my plans. Mm -hmm. So the more orders I can remove, the less options I'm giving them, the less chances there are of them doing something I did not foresee. Yeah. So one of the the things that feeds into this idea of of reliability or predictability or something like that is um, comeback potential, right? And if I... As as you were saying, Cav, if if I steal the three supply boxes on the first turn of supplies, it's a solid strategy. It can often win you the game, but I think it also does hand your opponent a reasonable amount of comeback potential. Um, if they're tabled and they don't have any models on the board, there's none. That, that's it. That's the game. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. And maybe, you know, I, I was talking about this with someone months ago, actually, and I think perhaps the sad reality is that, you know, as a competitive player, one of the most reliable ways to win a mission is to just play against yourself and, and not the opponent in a way. You know, if if they don't have models on the table, you're going to win more often than not. And perhaps that, that is sad. That was what was commented when I was talking about this a few months ago. But, you know, that's the way it is, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's any game, though. Yeah. It's much easier to win chess if you only have a king hmm. than if you have all of your pieces. Yeah. It's much easier yeah. to win checkers. The, 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 opponent, the opponent only having so, yeah. Yeah. When I say you, I meant your yeah. opponent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's much easier to win checkers when you have eight pieces and they have one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So 
So we, we've kind of spoken a lot about what alpha strikes do, what we're trying to achieve, why they're important. And I think what we're really getting down to is just that a well-executed alpha strike, and I think there's a massive asterisk there, which we will get onto, but a well-executed alpha strike removes a lot of comeback potential from the opponent. It can score very highly, it removes their options, and it really just sets you up for for the rest of the game, essentially. I, I think that's really the, the shortest way of expressing it. I'd agree with that, absolutely. Yep. So maybe we should get into a bit more specifics. Like, should we think about um, what an alpha strike might look like, some units that we might favor to do an alpha strike, and, and like perhaps how we go about performing that? Because this is where the asterisk comes in. The asterisk is, you know, you need to do a well a well-executed alpha strike. And I think we all three of us have spectated games and seen people really fail to pull this off successfully. So maybe we should talk a bit more about, about how to do that. Sure. I, I think there are several different kinds of alpha strikes, even within each of those. Like, you know, we're talking about an alpha strike to degrade your opponent's order pool, an alpha strike to eliminate specific models. And then, um, like Cav had said, an alpha strike to remove gear. Even within those categories, I think there's different types of alpha strike because different armies have different capabilities. But I think, in my experience, across all but 36 armies, the most commonly available form is an apex gunfighter and then a fast-moving close combat specialist hopefully armed with smoke and a template weapon. And those two models combine to form the components of the Alpha Strike. So in my they, list... They don't even they don't even have to be close combat per se, just a close range. Correct. Close, co- it, um, close combat is, it helps, but it's not necessary. You're absolutely right. Like a Sujan is an amazing Alpha Striker. It sucks in close combat. Um, but that close range capability... Uh, is the important bit, but adding in close combat just gives you another tool in the, ar- you know, another weapon in the arsenal to use. Um, so to use like Mylis as an example, they're very similar. Vanilla Nomads, the Salamandra is the Apex Gunfighter, and then uh, I can either use the Uberfall Commando or, to your point, have the Puppet Bots, the Boarding Shotgun Puppet Bot which again in close combat is awful um but the ability to plop that model 4 inches away from you in cover and say okay you don't have any good choices cuz if you do anything other than dodge I triple template you and if you dodge I shoot you 3 times hitting on 18s yeah. um and the salamandra is there to make sure that there's no aero pieces that are capable of slowing down the puppet bot mm-hmm. And then for Starmada, it's the exact same thing, only sub in the Zeta for the Salamandra and a Roadbot for the Papabots. Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, to begin to begin this discussion about how to execute Alpha Strikes, we need to have a little think about what's standing in the way of you know just removing your opponent's models. And typically we see um, a couple of different defensive strategies. The first is is one or more long-range ARO pieces. Um, 
sometimes none, but that's that's a bit uncommon. Um, and the second will be sort of short range defense in the form of mines um, and template weapons and, and things like that. So of course, what you're saying, Lobo, is that we need to use this dual approach of having a really long range gunfighter to pick off any pieces that might impede the progress of your puppet butt um, and or, or Uberford Commando, and then we can sort of push forwards with them, get into the enemy deployment zone, uh, block off templates with smoke, or just tank them, you know, if we're a Sujan with three wounds, um, and and just sort of, you know, getting into the, the closer ranges where we can start, you know, wreaking havoc with templates and things like that. Correct. Absolutely. And I think many different armies can do that. I think, and, and, you know, for sort of giving advice to newer players or even experienced players, um, that format is broad enough where you can apply it to almost any army. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm sort of blanking on any army that can't do it, to be honest yeah. with you. But, I mean, the core well, question is, can I cross the board and get to my opponent and start killing things? I, I suppose that is the question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you don't. I mean, you can you can rederive this outcome fairly easily, right? If I go first and my opponent stands everything up, then I just shoot it all, and then I win. And then if I go first and they lie down everything, then I take my fast attack piece and I run it up and I kill it all, and then I win. And so what your opponent should do instead is they should have some things that are standing up to stop the fast attack piece. Uh, but then if I, so that means that if I want my fast attack piece to be able to do my thing, I need to have some long range gunfighter to clear out the, you know, things that are standing up, be they war cores or flashbots or black girl missile launchers. Um, so I think, you know, you can, you can rederive this situation without necessarily appealing to getting a tag per se. You've just got a task that needs to be done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and there's lots of different models that can do it. I mean, whether it's, a, um, why am I blanking on the name? Uh, Shangji AP heavy machine gun, mm-hmm. or right. any other linkable AP heavy machine gun, um, will put down aero pieces quite reliably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even something like Phoenix, Phoenix and a link will knock down most aero pieces, mm-hmm. um, unless yeah. they have mimetism. But you know, I, and I think. Different factions um, are more or less equipped to fulfill these two criteria. Some are really, really good at that long-range, overpowering, you know, um, uh, role. But uh, I'm just, you know, let's just say Pano with tags. You know what? They are the sort of archetypal long-range support piece. Um, and other factions are really, really good at that sort of closer range, um, getting into the opponent's deployment zone and laying down templates, sort of um, role. Um, I guess the archetypal unit there would be impersonators or something, although they have their own pros and cons because they're a little bit squishy, but you know, they're still very good at doing that close range bit. Right. I, I think the Sujian with boarding shotgun is probably the archetypal, uh, thing that runs around your DZ, but, mm. uh, but impersonators are worth bringing up for yeah. sure. I think the thing that makes impersonators interesting, honestly, is that they, in some ways, elide the need for a DC to DZ gunfighter yeah. because, especially if I'm going first, 
I don't have to to cross the field of fire. Absolutely. I can start right next to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, something similar can be said for the Sphinx in that, sure, it doesn't start in your DZ, but it has marker state and 12 inches of movement. So, um, you know. Yeah, so... so, so in- and that's a really good point that you've raised, Kev. You know, sometimes in hack, we have this conversation a lot where people say, well, you know, how do I answer the long range ARO? And, and for some factions, one answer is, well, well, you don't. You use smoke or an impersonator or something similar. Right. Yes. And, you know, whether in some cases the impersonator can just kill the long range mm-hmm. ARO piece. And in some cases, you just throw smoke in front of it and then clean up with something else. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So two roles, um, ideally two roles. The first is long-range fire support to remove problematic arrows, and the second is some sort of closer-range combat piece to get into the enemy's deployment zone and and start causing trouble. Um, Should we talk a little bit about hackability um, and, and sort of different considerations there? Sure. Um, and we go into the hacking game. You add another, another layer of alpha strike. Um, and so if you're playing a, an army with hacking, the one of the first things you want to do is take control of the board with hacking. And that means getting rid of your enemy hackers. Um, especially if you're playing with your own hackable units. Uh, once, once all the enemy hackers are dead, it, it really negates a lot of the utility of, of, of their other models. If they have a missile bot, it's much less useful. If they have repeaters, you don't care about them. So winning that hacking game is very important. So a fast panda or a pitcher or a forward deploying repeater, being able to get in range of your enemy hackers and removing them is often, I'm not going to say a mandatory part, but at least a very important part of an alpha strike and against certain models, it's worthwhile having the guided missile to be able to hit models. You can't otherwise reach. It can be order intensive. And so it shouldn't be your primary alpha strike with one exception, uh, steel phalanx. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but apart from that, it's definitely a useful piece of equipment. And I'll give you a brief example of a game I played the other day. Um, I was playing against O12, and he had a Gamma Feuerbach up on top of a roof. And he had uh, Parvati with about three inches away from it. And I shot it with my uh, Salamandra and did a wound. He elected to stay standing. I shot him with my Salamandra, did another wound, and he decided to go prone. Now, that's a very expensive model. And I know I could not get to it because on top of a tall building. So if I leave it there on his turn, he just picks it back up. But instead, I just walked up through a fast panda spotlight and blew it up with a missile. So I think it more plays into the second type of alpha strike, which is removing key personnel. But the guided missile can be used to do that, to hit pieces you can't otherwise expediently remove <laughs> with the gun or the or the fast moving specialist. Yeah. So I think hack, hackability is really interesting because it adds extra dimensions to both um, defending against the alpha strike because, of course, 
you know, something like a Sujan can encounter some difficulties if it, you know, has to run into enemy hackers, enemy repeaters. But it also adds extra dimensions to the Alpha Strike itself because it opens up the guided missile option. And of course, if you have good repeaters, good pitchers, it also opens up the killer hacker option if you if you want to go for that. So it, it really complicates things on both sides. Yeah, I think in the context of Alpha Strikes, I mean, we just talked about active defense, like putting your troopers on arrow and the need for a long-range gun. Um, but one thing to consider, it, 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 hacking is a I, – I don't know that I would call it adding a dimension. I often feel like the hacking defense removes a dimension in the sense that if, if I'm playing a faction that uh, has a strong attack piece that's hackable, um, I can't move anywhere near their repeaters with that hackable unit, right? Because either it's going to get oblivioned or if it's a tag, total control. Um, or if it's veteran, carbonated. And all three of these outcomes are devastatingly inefficient to my hackable unit. So my correct strategy is almost always to just completely avoid any of the repeaters while the hacker is on the table. Mm. And yeah. so, you know, in my opinion, I actually feel like that, that removes, reduces dimensionality rather than increases it. Um, but even so, it, it provides that third, it, it is, it is another aspect to how you can defend against an alpha strike is that if the alpha striker that's coming in is going to be hackable, uh, then you could just hide behind your repeater network. Mm-hmm. Unless they have a way to scalpel out your hacker, um, you're going to be safe. And if they do have a way to scalpel out your hacker, uh, that probably took them enough orders that they're not going to, you know, have time to break the back of your, me otherwise. I mean, your hacker's dead, and that stinks. Um, but if that's all you lose, um, they're probably not going to be able to follow that up with Sujian as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because, of course, you know, executing an alpha strike itself takes orders, and you need to have a solid plan for it. And And if it's going to take a majority of your orders to remove the opposing hacker, that does unfortunately mean that maybe you're not moving your Sujan or maybe you're not moving your Uber for Commando or, or whatever else it is. Um, I think my perspective on it, adding a dimension, was really, you know, I'm primarily a vanilla player. I do have access to a lot of different, you know, types of profiles. And I sometimes think that the the sort of picture plus guided or killer hacking um killer hacking possibilities, you know, just give another way of attacking or defending um, that can be quite interesting. But I guess to certain factions, which one's raised most often? Is it Invincible Army? It, it really feels like it just shuts everything down. Well, I'm right. If you're, if you're running an army that's mostly hackable, then an enemy army that has lots of hacking capability is extremely oppressive. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It is. Right. I've been I've been running Stinks's recently, and against a hacking heavy defender, uh, my gameplay is exceedingly one dimensional. I mm. use Bitten Kiss to kill their hacker, yeah, and that's the first thing that happens in every single game. Um, that's I think the right strategy, and uh, you know the Sphinx is the Sphinx, and it, you know run something else, and then I wouldn't have this problem. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't. It, it feels pretty one dimensional. Yeah, um, and. To, to attack into it. And I, and I, I think, wanna... oh, sorry, I, I just really quickly wanted to go back to that earlier point I was saying where I was having that discussion about Alpha Strikes and, and someone was saying that it's a bit sad because actually that one 
dimensional aspect of things can sometimes feel quite, I don't know, maybe dull or th- that it removes options because we can talk about things like guided and alpha strikes and things, but sometimes it does sort of feel as though you have one um, best attack plan and, and that can be, I don't really know what the best word is here, that can be disappointing almost or I don't know. Predictable. Yeah, I mean, we go back to predictable, don't we? <laughs> um, but I want to touch on a word that Cavrian said, uh, efficiency. Hmm. And I think that is something that um, if you want to get better at your alpha strikes, that's something you need to look at. What is the most efficient means of achieving my alpha strike? And that's why Cav uses Bitten Kiss to kill the enemy hacker immediately. Because if he doesn't, that Sphinx has to become extremely inefficient in trying to perform its mission because it has, it can't go on large sections of the board. Yeah. And if it does, it's going to have to be like move and reset, which is a risk fraught, uh, choice every time you do it. Um, so uh, to talk about guided missile, guided missile can be extremely efficient or it could be extremely inefficient. And in most cases, if you have a big gun, that weapon is more efficient than the guided missile. Um, whereas throwing a fast panda or a pitcher and using Trinity is extremely efficient. So, um, you, and the more efficient you are, the longer your alpha strike can go, or maybe yeah. think of it as you will have more orders with which you are moving and attacking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, in previously demonstrating some of the problems with guided, um, I've started to talk about kills per order, which is, you know, a really silly way of expressing things, but I think it gets across this idea that putting a, Zou, a Sujan into the enemy deployment zone will hopefully for the Sujan player result in a lot of kills per order. Um, whereas mm-hmm. guided yeah. might actually be quite low kills per order, but you know, maybe it's more of a surgical strike against a specific target. Yes. Yes. Because, uh, you know, if you want to just get kills per order, a Sujan in the middle of the deployment zone can conceivably kill two to three order uh, models per order. If they're packed even remotely near one another, because he can split his templates. And, you know, one template here, one template there, one template there, potentially killing multiple guys who are not necessarily like all in a two-inch circle. They can be in different directions even. And every time it moves, it can kill two to three models, assuming they're there. Whereas a guided missile, assuming your opponent has a little bit of discipline in the deployment, is at best one kill every two orders. Because it's spotlight, then kill, then spotlight, then kill. So – now, you know, Cav likes, and I think it's a very valid point, risk assessment is a good option. There is no risk for that guided missile to your models. It's your order that you're risking, whereas the Sujan can potentially get crit or killed. Um, but, or run out of orders and be in your opponent's <laughs> deployment zone and have a bad CC score. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, which is why, by the way, another element of that fast attack piece is – um, disposability. Like the Sujan is an amazing attack piece, but it's expensive. And, you know, it's what, like a sixth of your list? Something um, like that, yeah. It's like 50 points. Yeah. Um, whereas something like an Uberfall Commando, which is obviously much less resilient, 
and doesn't have the raw offensive capability that Sujan does, it's 20 points. Mm-hmm. If it dies, oh well. Um, as long as it's gotten its points back, which it usually will, unless you get a little unlucky. Um, same thing, you know, Ariadna has the Desperados for five, six points. They can trade up tremendously. Yeah, yeah. But, so, yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think what we're talking about here is just thinking about how orders contribute to alpha strikes and and how there is often a trade-off between um, orders and risk. Where, where guided takes, can, can take a lot of orders, but be relatively risk free. Whereas some other options like moving, um, an Uber for commando might take multiple orders. Uh, sorry, might take fewer orders to, to kill things once it reaches the opponent's DZ. Um, but it, uh, comes with a bit more risk because it could die or, or, you know, something else might happen. Um, so, you know, that's the trade off. And the, the dimension about, um, hacker defenses is obviously what we were saying was when you're picking an, an alpha strike piece or a, a unit to push into the enemy's deployment zone, um, you do, I suppose, want to be a little bit careful about the use of hackable pieces because they just have another, um, another avenue through which they can be shut down. And then you, you know, have to end up thinking about killer hackers or choosing a different piece or something like that. Correct. Correct. The more options you have, the more dangerous your alpha strike is. Hmm. Yeah. I think um, when when it comes to um, risk assessment and uh, and disposability of your attack piece, I think the important thing to comment on is that that an alpha strike uh, it isn't just a binary. Uh, it, it does have some context to it. Um, if I kill six of your orders. And, you know, we've, we've said that that can be really crippling, and it can be really crippling, but it's not automatically really crippling. If I kill six of your orders, but it costs me exposing, let's say, my core fire team to your ability to punch right back, we probably wouldn't call that an alpha strike, or at least we probably wouldn't call that a good use of our, our attack vector here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what, what being disposable lets you do is it either lets you keep that piece alive um, once it's done, or it means that it's cheap enough that you can lose that piece and not really care all that much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. One, yeah. One of the things I try to talk to other players about a lot as well is that actually the successfulness of an attack it is true, you know, might lie mostly in how you spend orders in your turn, but actually there is also a significant, um, a significant extent to which your success lies on what the opponent then does in their turn. Um, what some people would call the swing back or, or the return or something like that. If we are exposing a whole fire team, you know, they might kill five or six models, but then if your opponent then kills your five or six models, you haven't really achieved that much. Um, so, yeah, we need to start having a think um, about evaluating our orders and, and what we're doing, not just in terms of what we kill and what we achieve, but also in terms of how difficult it is for the opponent to undo or to strike us back. 
Correct. And I think, I think that's why when we talk about Alpha Strike pieces, um, they should be in an ideal world. If I play my game right, I will have moved like three models on my first turn. So, like when I play my Vanilla Nomads, my group two, I move typically my Heckler and my Salamandra. And group one, I move either the, the Uberfall or the Puppet Butts. And that's it. Everybody else is in the, is in highly defensible positions, prone. The TR bot is an exception, but that's a different story. But everyone else is hiding. Mm-hmm. So, and I make sure to save an order or two so that when the Salamandra is finished doing whatever it needs to do, it is back in my deployment zone, up against the wall, ready to ARO and then be able to guts back into cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the hallmark of a successful alpha strike is there is no clapback. Mm. The opponent's first turn is simply trying to, like, you know, pardon the French, unfuck themselves from where I yeah, put them. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it, you know, we defined that almost as baked it into our properties here. Yeah. If they have a clapback, then, you know, maybe it wasn't as much of an alpha strike as you thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think you, you can often feel when you've done a successful alpha strike because the opponent's turn might consist of, you know, no more than a little bit of stabilization, but they can't really do anything else. They can't hit you in return particularly hard and they can't really develop their own game plan. They might just perhaps, I don't know, resurrect, uh, heal a single unit and then move a couple of models around and that's it. You really get that feeling of it being quite stifling if you pull it off effectively. And it's a knock-on effect because I go first. I have 15 models, probably something between 17 to 20 orders, depending on you know impetuous and tackleware. And they get to go and they might only have 10 or 9. And they they're not really going to be able to damage me, which means on my second turn, I still probably have almost as many orders. And then I get to kick another leg out from under them. And so yeah. each turn they get to do less and less and less. Um, so if they weren't able to do anything on their first turn, odds are they're not going to be able to do anything on their second turn. They're probably tabled by their third. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the ideal. I mean, obviously it always happen that way, but mm. that, that's your ideal alpha strike. Mm-hmm. And I think coming back to this idea that we spoke about earlier um, around how aggression in infinity is intrinsically rewarded because of the order system and because of the fixed nature of lists. One other important point to bear in mind is that if you successfully pull off aggression, it then becomes actually you know easier to be aggressive again the next turn. The opponent has less stuff. They've had fewer orders. They can't do as much. They don't have as many guns. It sort of snowballs itself, doesn't it? Correct. Correct. And I think that that ties into sort of, we've talked about the do's Mm -hmm. of alpha striking. I think we should talk about the don'ts. Mm -hmm. And I think this sort of, you know, um, dovetails with the idea of have a plan. Um, Every order you spend, I mean, arguably every order you spend in infinity period is important. 
but I feel like every order you spend on your first turn of an alpha strike is even more important. So if you don't need to move a model, don't. If it's not directly contributing to your plan, whatever that plan is, save it. You don't have to push a button right now. You don't have to drop a mine right now. You don't have to like you don't have to reposition a guy because if you did it right, he's he's where he's supposed to be because you got to deploy. Mm. Um so unless it's extremely important because your opponent deployed something you were not prepared for, every order you spend should be in aid of stripping your opponent of orders. Yeah, absolutely. Back to that idea of perhaps predictability or reliability or something. It is laser focused. It is very precise. You are, every order you spend is really in, um, it is in pursuance of making sure you can kill as many of the opponent's models as possible or alternatively remove the most important uh, models that the opponent possesses. That, that is it. That's the goal. Or, or getting yourself back to safety. I mean, you, that, that is an, uh, it's, I've, I've had games where the Sphinx's alpha strike failed because my opponent chose to try to kill one more thing as mm. opposed to run away. Yeah. So reducing your own risk when all is said and done is an, don't, don't go all in on killing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, do I guess go all in on the notion of creating as big of a gap between your surviving list and their surviving mm-hmm. list, either in terms of points or capability or whatever. Yeah, I, I actually really like that idea where what you're saying is that maybe it's more important to consider the net calculation between what you lose and what the opponent loses rather than just the gross, because actually... You know, if you kill a lot of things, but you lose a lot of things, that's not an alpha strike. That hasn't really put you that far ahead. So it's that it's that gap, isn't it, that really matters? Right. I think you know if your alpha strike worked at the end of their turn. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can know it at the end of your turn, too. Sometimes the writing's on the wall. But, um, right, it's not just about what you kill uh, in your turn. It's about what the situation looks like after they've had their chance to react. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it comes back to that idea that, that Lobo was saying about the, um, oh, what's the right word? The disposability, you know, of, of certain pieces. You know, if you are moving an Uber for Commando forwards and it's 20 points and it dies, you know, that's okay. You don't need to spend maybe too many orders moving it to safety because it doesn't matter. If you're doing it with Sujan for 50 points, you know, that's a completely different set of, of consideration. So, you know, we need to think really carefully about how we're setting this up and how we're retreating. Um, and there's probably another whole podcast episode we do here about how to, um, how to get out of it if you don't do an alpha strike properly, because that's really important as well. Yes. Yeah. Because a failed alpha strike just compounds your problem because you've now thrown away your first turn. So not only is the mission against you, because second turn is favored in most missions. But now your opponent has three turns to your two. A failed alpha strike is yeah. almost almost invariably a lost game, depending on how badly it was botched and, and the mission. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe this is why it's so important that players practice aggression and practice alpha strikes, because actually 
they are quite risky propositions, aren't they? I mean, if you spend all of your first turn moving a bunch of pieces and killing one thing, that's really not a very good turn. You're not going to get very far in that game. Yes, and in many cases, you can watch games, and you watch it, and the first turn goes by, and the first player kills six models, and you're like, okay, this game is over. And I've seen other games where the first person goes, and he doesn't do anything, and you know the game is over, and not a single model has been lost, but mm. the game is over. Yeah. Beca- because he's he's sort of frittered away his first turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Should we just maybe have a think about what our favorite alpha strikers are and then we can talk about what we see in them personally that makes them good? Because I, I suppose that might help sort of newer players or, or less experienced people to sort of get into our mindset of what we're looking out for. What would you say your favorite alpha striker is, Cav? Okay, so for me, when we say alpha striker, we're probably zeroing in on that part of the alpha strike where you're running around the opponent's DZ and you're hunting his weak stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I raise this distinction because we've talked about the importance of the Zeta and the Salamandra yeah. in clearing the way for your Alpha Striker. Mm. But I'm, you know, calling that the that's part of the Alpha Strike, but the Alpha Striker is the one that's doing the striking. And in my opinion, the, uh, the, the preeminent Alpha Striker, I guess the word I tend to use on the Discord is Rambo here. Mm-hmm. So, the preeminent Rambo, in my opinion, is the Sphinx. Okay. You're talking about a unit with unparalleled mobility, um, extremely good close range shooting. Um, you got your, your movement six, six, your climbing plus, and you have marker state if you need it. Mm-hmm. So suckingly mobile. Yep. Um, incredibly deadly with your, either your up damaged Spitfire on BS 14 with min minus six. Uh, you also, I believe, have flamethrowers with extra bursts, yep. just in case somebody wants to to play reindeer games and, and find out what happens. <laughs> um, and, you know, your armor six with three wounds, so a Morlock standing on a corner isn't going to phase you with that chain rifle. Yep. Um, so, in my opinion, the Sphinx is the, is the preeminent Rambo. Yeah. Uh, now it is hackable, <laughs> which does mean that you cannot go near enemy repeaters while the hacker is alive, or else... You will uh, lose, you know, on incredibly high likelihood for my taste. <laughs> yeah. um, but I sort of kind of, I sort of kind of put that as categorically aside um, because, you know, that's sort of a binary. So in my, in my opinion, the Sphinx is the, is the preeminent Rambo. Sure. So you're talking, uh, but it is ex- it's extremely expensive, yeah. isn't it? But you, you're talking about maneuverability, firepower, safety and marker states, things like that. Yeah, right. Like if I'm trying to think like this thing just appeared in my deployment zone, I, I'm playing Shattered Grounds and it has terrain total. So it got to use parachutist in that one mission. The Sphinx is one of the things that I really do not want to see just appearing <laughs> right. in my deployment zone. I guess unless I've got that hacking defense. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I'd rather, no, absolutely. I'd rather see an Uberfall than a, than a Sphinx in that context. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your favorite that you've got to use, Lobo? I mean, you've played a lot of factions, haven't you? So what's what's been your highlight? Uh, I think a bear. Yeah, bears. Very common yeah, the example. Heavy, the heavy shotgun bears specifically. Hmm. And, I, and I, I don't disagree with 
uh, Cav. I don't think the bear is necessarily better than the, the Sphinx. I just don't play combined army, really. Um, but the bear combines the fact that it has smoke, so it can obscure fire lanes. It's fast. It ignores things like an EM mine will really slow down a Sphinx, whereas the bear just ignores it and goes right through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 32 points. Yeah, absolutely. And, and effectively three wounds unless you get, unless you're being hit by a viral weapon, which is, which are rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shotgun, it's damage 16. It's armor piercing. If you use it in hit mode, if you need to, they're damage 18 in CC, they can berserk. Um, and if you play, it is very, very difficult unless you get really, really unlucky not to trade up considerably with that bear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if it happens to survive, if it happens to survive, is able to go prone on a rooftop in your opponent's deployment zone, that's a real problem for your opponent. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So again, you've spoken about maneuverability, you know, it's fast. You've spoken about a different angle on survivability, which comes through the smoke. Um, but again, you know, with the multiple wounds as well. So that's, that's a common thread that you've both mentioned. Um, and then, you know, once again, it's destructive potential. You know, you've got very high damage templates, very high damage AP weapon, um, and really good CC as well. Yes. And, and, and fork the reason. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. As I say, and, and the fork aspect, which mm. is incredibly important. The Sphinx, as Cap pointed out, do you want to eat four damage 15 Spitfire rounds or do you want to eat two heavy flamethrower rounds? Mm-hmm. Um, and neither one is good. Yep. And same thing with the bear. Do you want to eat two damage 16 templates or two damage 16 armor piercing rounds yeah. on 17? Yeah. Go ahead, Cap. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to remark the reason that durability is so important is because of, well, the reason it's so important is because if you don't have durability, then your opponent can have a, an edge guard with a template and that can shut off your. Template. So, um, and you know, I bring this up just because in case we hadn't quite put our fingers on it, it's not because you're expecting to lose a face to face. Um, those will happen sometimes, and it's nice to have redundancy there. But the real issue is that if I don't have that second wound, a single Jaguar or Morlock or Varangian or Stock Mine on the edge of a deployment can just end, end the run, and that's that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the durability is really one aspect of an Alpha Striker that can help your run to not be a catastrophic failure. You know, if you've got a single wound piece that you're trying to make a run with and you bump into a chain rifle, um, you know, unless you've got smoke or something, it, it's awful. You know, it's really not something that you want to to come up against. But if you've got two or three wounds and high armor, it's far less catastrophic. So it really opens up your options and removes options from the opponent in terms of how they defend. And the cost of losing to that chain rifle is not just the cost of the model. It's the cost of the three to four orders you've put into it to get to his deployment zone. Mm-hmm. And that now it's like, oh, okay, I, I spent two or three orders, probably two or three for a good alpha striker. Yeah. Um, I spent three orders getting to his deployment zone and then failed the dodge. 
and now I'm unconscious. Yeah, that's awful. And now, <laughs> and now not only have I lost this piece, but I have to spend three more orders on another piece doing inflicting zero damage. Yep. Because it's just move, 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 throw smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fine to do that once. You don't want to be doing that twice yeah. on the first turn. Well, absolutely. I mean, in the same way that we said that successes roll or carry forwards because, you know, you get momentum from the opponent having fewer models and orders, uh, failures carry forward as well because you've got to then uh, attempt the situation again. So it's more orders wasted, you've lost a model, things like that. So, you know... This really highlights the importance of the early turns in Infinity and why having that sort of very strong, very predictable, if possible, um, first turn can be so powerful because you, you know, you remove so many options from the opponent and give yourself so many instead. Um, I suppose I should say my favorite, uh, well, I'm primarily a Hackers Lum player and I guess I don't have a, a ton of great durable options, but for me it's probably Zuleika, um, which falls into the sort of Uber for Commando camp of being very disposable um, in terms of just being uh, 11 or, or 12 points since the Mimetism update. Um, with Smoke, with Dogged, um, with a, a moderate to decent fork between the Breaker Pistols um, and Flamethrowers, um, and good CC and things as well. And because of the low points cost, um, not a massive disaster if the opponent does manage to kill her um, in their turn. But also the high speed really means that you can pull her back quite easily as well. So I think that's mine from the factions that I play commonly. Why uh, Why not the Fide? Just out of curiosity. I, I am sort of notorious for not liking Fides that much. Um, really, like, quite simple... Okay is just like it's the single wound and i think the fact that i go up against so many players like yourself and like lobo who just put chain rifles next to their important pieces and it's you know it just doesn't go very well for the fide you end up um fides i often feel are those models that end up not creating a massive net difference as as you said cav you might kill one or two things but you're probably going to lose the fide as well um and that for me, puts them in the camp of uh, a surgical alpha strike against certain units rather than a sort of more indiscriminate aggression. And I think if someone has um, resilience and redundancy built into their list, a surgical strike like that can't work very well. So blah, 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 I can go on for ages, but I'm actually not a massive fan of Fides on turn one. Yeah, I think I think Fides, Speculo... Although, honestly, I think Speculo and Fide are very, very different. Um, to me, a Speculo is find a really big piece and kill it with my monofilament weapon. Um, or, whereas a Fide is go kill a bunch of weenies. Yeah. You know, like, there's nothing better than taking a Fide and killing four or five weak enemy models. Because mm-hmm. you're really... There's some fides that just have like a regular CC weapon, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you you know a tag. Okay, you, you can go ahead and engage my tag with your fide. You're not going to kill it anytime soon. You're no, spend no. all your orders. No. Um, yeah, but, there's a difference between I suppose Algebel, which has the continuous um, and the viral weapon, um, versus a normal fide with weaker BS and weaker CC. But I personally just find that 
most fides, the cheaper ones, want to kill weenies, but they're not actually that good at killing weenies because single wounds, you reveal, you get chain rifled, you die. That's that's it. Um, and I'm being redundant. Of course, that's not always the case. We we all know that impersonator strikes can be crippling, but I just I personally feel that they just don't have that same sense of like being predictable game to game. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. And and against certain armies. You play against Ariadna, every model on the table has a chain rifle or a shotgun. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. usually it's you kill one model and die. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly uh, it. Like I just I think there are a lot of factions that Fides just aren't that good into. Um another one is Yujing. A lot of their important models aren't on the table and the rest of them have chain rifles. It's not amazing for you. <laughs> like <laughs> Cal, I'm curious, why don't, because I think you're sort of uniquely suited to talk about it. Talk about Alpha Striking with something like Steel Phalanx, where you're using a core fire team that's expensive and moving it across the table. Because that's very different than what we've been talking about. That's a that's a great question, actually. I, I'm glad you asked, because I hadn't realized there's something to say here. Um, so Steel Phalanx is unique for a bunch of reasons. Um Let's set aside Achilles for now, because Achilles, um, you know, he he is sort of very similar to the Sphinx or the Sujian in that he shoots real good, but is hackable. He's fast, but um, is sort of medium range, uh, medium to short range. So let's suppose you're not running Achilles. Um, the Steel Felix Alpha Strikes are interesting because you often don't have it, it well actually so the steel phalanx alpha strike is interesting because it's all about your position for things uh after your turn ends um the typical steel phalanx list uh, except for achilles your typical steel phalanx is not really going to be that great at long range shooting um you have phoenix but he's only burst three uh, he's only BS 13 or 14, and, and he has Mimetism on his 6, and these are all, like, pretty good. Definitely, you know, definitely very solid on your active turn. Um, but he's not, he, he's not as reliable as you might like at, um, like, he's not just an absolute killer. And it really just boils down to that first 3, in my opinion. First 3 and relatively low damage. So he can't handle tags, and his reliability against things like flash pulse bots can be annoying. Um, like it's not uncommon for him to fail to kill a flash pulse bot in, in one order and get stalled out. All of which is to say he's not excellent as a long range gunner. He's like probably a tier. I'd give him an A, but I wouldn't give him an S on the active turn. Um, in ARO, he's, he's phenomenal. Um, so. As a Steel Phalanx player, if you're trying to do your Alpha Strikes, you're not killing your opponent's ARO pieces because you're probably throwing smoke. Um, as the Steel Phalanx player, your links are all generally 4-4. Like, Oideros is 6-2, but, but Akmon isn't. So when you're throwing smoke, you're slowing yourself down. Um, and when the smoke clears, the thing that you threw smoke to stop, it's still there. So if you're trying to get 6-7 kills, the flashbowl spot that you junk along the way you know, that doesn't count as one of your six or seven kills if you threw smoke and didn't kill it. So instead, in my opinion, the Steel Phalanx Alpha Strike, um, yes, it involves killing stuff, and that's great, 
But the other thing that it really involves doing is taking that link and putting it somewhere where it's going to be a monumental problem for your opponent to deal with. Um, I had a game where I took my link and I ran across the DZ and I killed like two models of my opponent. Um, one of which was their data tracker, which was a big deal in that particular mission. But I really only killed two things. But when the smoke cleared, I had the entirety of my link standing in the middle of his fire team core with his fire team Harris nearby. He couldn't move without multiples of models eating multiples of templates in ARO. And I would definitely consider that to have been a successful alpha strike. Even though, once the dust settled and my opponent's turn was over, my link was dead. And even though at the end of my turn I hadn't killed all that much stuff, the game had still been decided because of that positional aspect of things. So with Steel Phalanx, it's really, it's, if you're going to pull off a successful Alpha Strike, it's all about figuring out how to get the most out of the amazing dangerousness that your Steel Phalanx link has in Arrow. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's quite unique, actually, isn't it? We haven't really covered that at all. And I think, I, I, you know, I think it is unique. I don't know that anyone else really can do it quite like that. Well, I don't think any other army has the combination of all of the unique things that Steel Phalanx brings. All of them are close combat specialists. All of them are mimetism minus six. Half of your link, if not more, can throw eclipse or smoke. Um, almost all of them have templates, right? Everybody has a nano pulser or, or a shotgun or a chain rifle, rather. Um, almost all of them are multiple wounds, if not, you know, or one wound, no wound in cap, and shock immune. So, right. um, and most of them are not hackable, so they can't be shut down by Oblivion or Carbonite. Right. Uh, so yeah. it's it's something really unique to that faction. So yeah, other other factions and other links can get some of that mileage in some stances too. Um, especially back before the fire team rework, back when you had more pure cores around. Um, I remember doing things like putting up a pure core link Vostok mm. next to a pure core linked mobile regatta with a pure core linked evader boarding shotgun engineer standing downstairs. And, uh, you know, none of those guys are good at CC. None of those guys can throw smoke, but they got the job done, right? They're, you know, they're certainly dangerous enough. Mm. So uh, post fire team rework, I mean, I would point to Riot Girls as being an example because they're still pure. So I'm not to say that no one else can do this per se, uh, but the the windows are just much smaller, I think. Yeah, I, well, I think Steel Phalanx has all of the tools. I mean, you can take those face-to-faces like Riot Girls can, but if it all goes to shit, they just throw Eclipse and Riot Girls can't do that. So, you know, that's the thing. Right. Do you think we should round up a little bit and just sort of sum up what we've said and, and close? Sure. And um, I think I think one of the problems with describing things in Infinity or talking about things in Infinity is 
there's so much variability. It's hard to sort of remain focused because there's so many different things you can talk about. And it's hard to give specific examples in a lot of cases. It's like sort of do this. Uh, so um, I wish sometimes it were easier to give specific examples to new newer players. But so much depends on terrain and your enemy's list and your list. But yeah, but I think it's all very contingent. It is. It yes. is. There's a, there's a lot of contingencies in um, in in most Infinity games. But I think for us, there are a couple of considerations we've gone through, which is if you're playing first, you want to spend your orders doing something very impactful. Um, choosing, if you're going yeah. first and you want to pull off an alpha strike, mm. then you should go first and you should go for the alpha strike. Mm. Yeah. They, Don't lay yeah. a single mine until you, <laughs> you know, decided that you're done with that alpha strike. Mm-hmm. Oh, one other thing I meant to mention, because I see this happen all the time. Don't, don't, don't walk up a bunch of models and put them in suppressifier in the middle of the table. <laughs> I know it seems like it's a good idea, but it's really not. All you're doing is wasting orders, because suppressifier on the first turn is not effective. Your opponent has their entire order pool and all of their tools to deal with it. So, and every time you're putting something in suppressifier, number one, you're leaving it out of like up and available to be clapped back against. And two, that's one more order you're not killing stuff with. So, so a couple of things that are really important. The first is you could spend a lot of orders pressing buttons, but then, of course, that's a really bad idea if the opponent has the final turn because they just turn around, press the buttons back, and you haven't done anything. So, you know, usually not a very good use of your time. You could develop your game plan by moving a lot of models forward and putting them in suppressive fire, but the problem is then you usually haven't really impacted the opponent directly, like with the buttons example, and, of course, your opponent can just turn around and engage those suppressing models in the most favourable way possible and remove any progress you've made. A final thing you can do is just kill your opponent's models, and you know that's the only option out of this that directly impacts their ability to play the game, You know the most direct way possible. Um, and also makes sure... Well, it's the hardest thing to recover from out of those three options, I think. Agreed. All right, and I think the other thing that we discussed here is that, uh, you know, pulling supply boxes and taking them back might be the right strategy for supplies. You might get really good at figuring out exactly how to grab boxes and supplies. You might tailor your list around that, uh, but that's only going to work for supplies. Whereas an Alpha Strike, you know, good plan every day of the week, every mission, right? (laughs) An Alpha Strike... (laughs) Can can give you that leg up. Yeah, killing your opponent is always good, and it's always the same series of moves. That's the thing, um, right? Yeah. Um, so this is this is about first player. We haven't really spoken too much about second player, but I guess we have mentioned that you know second players can do an alpha strike themselves if they get off the aggression first. You know, we're really just talking about removing your opponent's options before they do that to you. So second player can do an alpha strike. 
Um, but in ordinary circumstances, their emphasis and focus is on deployment, covering those angles and preventing uh, scary things from walking into their deployment zone. That's that's most often what they're focused on, I would say. Yes. Yeah, my, my, my rule of thumb would be if you're going second, you should try to imagine how long your opponent is going to spend on their first turn and try to spend about that much time thinking about your own deployment. Uh, because if you're going second, then the most important thing that you can do is deploy well. So spend the time on it. Yeah, if you... Um... Going second is all about delay. Every order you your opponent is spending not killing one of your models is a win. So to that end, turn zero repeaters, um, crazy koalas, mines, and if you have to put stuff up for ARO, it's stuff that should either be extremely durable or stuff you don't care about. A tag on ARO is great as long as you can guts back after that first shot. Mm-hmm. Or at least the first shot that you take a wound. Um, Roadbots are great. Obviously, flash pulse bots work, of course, for the opposite reason. They're disposable, and the mimetism on the flash pulse bot is, is pretty good. So um, it's all about delay. Yeah, Absolutely. Is there anything else we feel that we, we need to cover just to wrap up this this episode? Or do you think we've mostly captured it all? I think we mostly got it. I'm sure there's something we missed, but mm. it's already been a long enough podcast for everybody. I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, we didn't really go into the specifics of how to set up guided but i'm not sure we, this is you know really appropriate for this episode we might end up talking about it another time or something but you know that's fine i think yeah i think guided, guided could talk to death anyway <laughs> yeah i mean guided yeah, is its thing isn't it true. yeah right cool well in that case um thanks everyone for tuning in i hope this has been helpful and um we'll see you next time bye so long here.